Good morning, everyone. Morning. Um, sorry, being a slight oversight with the uh, the host, so I'll just introduce myself. Um, my name's David Smith, um, and you're at the seminar, which is called Speak Up. So if that's news to you and you want to move to another seminar, that's totally fine. Now's your opportunity. Um, I work for Evangelical Alliance, and my role there is public policy officer. Uh, and my job is to, I suppose, operate in the in the space where faith, politics, law, and culture uh, mix together. Um, and my role puts me in that space every day. And so what I want to do today is highlight a resource called Speak Up. And there'll be a copy of that for everyone to take away with them at the, at the end. Uh, I want to talk about why the Evangelical Alliance and Lawyers Christian Fellowship produced that resource, uh, what it tries to do. Uh, and then looking in a bit more detail on how do we practically share our faith in the public square. What do I mean by that? We'll look at that in a bit more detail. But essentially, our, our workplaces, online, social media, uh, what about politics and media? How do we share our faith well? If you are struggling to hear me, I encourage you to come forward uh, now. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to get you all talking because uh, I want this morning to be as practical as possible. Uh, this is about speaking up. So why don't we have a little practice about that in just a moment. Sue's going to put up a scenario. So uh, hopefully you can see that, but uh, you're in work next week, or you're at your dinner table, whatever the context is. Uh, it's lunchtime and BBC Talkback's on. William Crawley has a few guests in who are discussing the latest uh, case where a Christian street preacher is being questioned over a potential hate crime because of something that he said that questioned the beliefs of another, another faith. Your colleague, who isn't a Christian, turns around to you and says, I, I've seen the stuff that you post on Facebook, you're a, you're a Christian, aren't you? Uh, I don't get all this religious nonsense. Why can't we just live and let live? So how would you respond? And what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, get into small groups. You may have come with someone, you may not. Now is your opportunity to make a friend. Um, so just chat to someone for about five minutes uh, and how would you speak up in response to this scenario? And I'll give you about five minutes. Okay, off you go. Okay, just another few minutes. I'm just getting your gut reactions at this stage, so another few minutes. Okay, um, you can pick up the conversations again maybe at the end um, and maybe you'll be thinking slightly differently by then, maybe not. Um, does anyone want to dare shout out uh, what you were talking about? How, how did you feel whenever you were confronted with this scenario? Yeah, absolutely. I think reacting with your, your personal experience is a really good uh, starting point. If it's already a friend, a work colleague, there's that relationship there. Any other issues come up in the scenario? <laughs> I agree, I'm there. Um, wasn't me, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, yeah, that may solve some ills. Um, listen, we'll, we'll come back to something somewhere at the end, and, and there will be time for questions. So if I say anything that you don't agree with, uh, feel free to um, question me around that. But why speak up? I, I'm basically taking it as a given, but it is vital that we speak up from a place that comes from the right motivation. Why should we speak up? Well, we speak up out of um, our love for Jesus. We speak about the things and the people we love. I speak about my wife and my, my children because I love them. I have a relationship with them. It's not a duty, and it's not something I need to think twice about. It's natural. And I defend their honor and their names. If lies are spoken about them, um, I, I speak truth. 
and if hate is directed at them, I will respond out of love. And so we, we love Jesus. We want to honor him. Uh, and Philippians 3, 8 says, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider him rubbish that I might gain Christ. And that's, that's the motivation of our heart whenever we want to speak up. Uh, we speak out of lo- love for the lost. We speak up because Jesus is the only way to a saving relationship with God. Uh, and the Bible is really clear in this. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One other example, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We speak out of love for our brothers and sisters in the church. Maybe not just as a parent straight up, but the gospel has been entrusted to us, passed down faithfully for 2,000 years. And we defend it from hearsay and from lies. And, and we're all here today because thousands of people over thousands of years have spoken up about the gospel. And from 2 Timothy 4, 4 says this, For the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine, but with itching ears they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. So they will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. And sometimes our speaking up might involve conversations with those who also profess faith in Christ. And contending for the gospel, particularly in public or social media maybe, um, against others who profess a different truth is really tough. Let's agree to disagree well. Let's let love and humility mark our conversations. We speak simply because we are commanded to and commissioned to do that. John 17, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Mark 16, 15, go into all the earth and preach the good news to all creation. Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission again, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so you see. And God's reign, finally, is over the entire earth. So from Genesis to Revelation, via the Psalms, when uh, God is declaring Lord over all the heavens and all the earth. Through Colossians 1, in fact, throughout the entire wave of Scripture, we see God's sovereign rule across all the earth. There is no part of human existence or life over which Jesus is not Lord. And so, therefore, there's no part of all creation or human life where the gospel is not good news. So, just briefly, what is the gospel? I'm not going to dwell on this point. But do you know the gospel? Can you explain it? You can't speak up about it if you don't know it. And I don't just mean knowing up here. I mean, do you know it in your heart? Have you incarnated the gospel? Have you allowed Jesus to make you into a new creation? Are you living out the truth that you profess with your mouth? And don't share a small personal vision of of God. My, My daughter Maeve has a playhouse in our garden. And sometimes she invites me in for tea. And it's a little bit like that with us and God sometimes we think we invite him into our heart and we do and we can point to Revelation when uh, Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock and, and, and he, is in, ent- he is inviting in and he says he will enter but actually Maeve doesn't understand that, that I own the whole property on which her little house is built and she doesn't quite get that whenever she invites me in I'm already there, I already own the property And sometimes we're a little bit like that with God. We don't realize that um, us inviting God in, God is actually inviting us into his life. It's not us inviting God into our life. God is inviting us into his life, into the fullness of all of his eternal life. 
and wherever we enter in, our whole lives are subsumed into, into him. We are made anew. And so there's a both and there. But maybe we just need to understand the, the fullness, the huge picture of the gospel, and not try to trim it down to a few sentences that won't do, do justice. Defending the gospel, I just want to raise this briefly. Because straight off, I think there's a danger as we speak up that we could, that we could fall into a default position of defensiveness. And there's a big difference in defending something and in being defensive. The gospel does not need us to defend it. God is our defender. The word of God will last forever. His will will be done on heaven as it is on earth. It is written. Jesus was pretty ambivalent about his public approval reigning. Some people hearing him, spread lies about him, thought he was a devil. He was hugely misunderstood. Can we cope with that? He got on with his God-given mission. Charles Spurgeon said, said this, The gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It needs to be let out of its cage. We're not speaking up about a kitten. Here we're speaking up about the lion of Judah. The Almighty does not depend on me to defend him. He is my defender, as I said. And the gates of hell will not stand up or prevail against the advance of the gospel. And so we speak up because we love Jesus, we love the lost, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we speak up to defend, yes, at times, but not in a posture of defensiveness because God doesn't need us to do that. Okay, I've looked at why we should speak up and what we're actually speaking about, but why this resource and why now? And again, you will get a copy to take away with you at the end. Uh, in order to unpack these two questions, why this resource and why now, I need to explain a few things. First, the context in which we're living. Second, the perceived confusion that we are hearing. Thirdly, the clarity that we are seeking to give. And finally, the confidence that we hope will be regained. First of all, context. For Christians, there's no doubt that we have a mandate to talk about our faith. In the words of of Matthew's gospel as, as we said go and make disciples and we recognize that even as the early Christians began to do this they were met with a mixed reaction some accepted the message gladly while uh, some sought to censor or to silence them and it may seem as though little has changed since those first days we continue to live in a world where the claims of Jesus Christ are welcomed by some while the same message is considered deeply offensive by others but for decades if not centuries we have in the UK lived in an environment where talking about and discussing our faith has been a widely accepted part of normal life. However, it, it does seem that recently there is something of a chill and perhaps more open hostility is not that far away. We're living in a, an increasingly secularized world, one in which issues of faith are being at least pushed to the margins and small but vocal elements would have us believe that our faith should be kept private and any conversations about God would be deeply unwelcome. There has been the occasional situation where a Christian has gone into legal trouble while sharing their faith, and the media can seize upon these rare cases where talking about Jesus has led to that, and then it silences the rest of us, perhaps. On the other hand, we live in a society where the language of freedom, of rights, is heard more and more, and where protection from religious discrimination is granted by strong domestic and European legislation. So ours is a multi-ethnic, plural society where people are encouraged to tolerate and embrace diversity, including Christianity. And given those rights, it should follow that there's greater opportunities to talk about Jesus. 
But this is where the confusion has perhaps arisen. As one person so simply uh, put it to me, there's a cloud of doubt has come over many, many Christians. They find themselves asking, do our laws prevent me from talking about Jesus or do they actually promote the freedoms that I have to do that? And so there's confusion as to when and where you may get into trouble. What about that case I heard in the news? Uh, and not many people want to get into trouble, particularly with the law. And so the default position slowly but surely becomes that of maybe just holding back that little bit more. And so then non-Christians are confused as well because if we're not sharing the gospel, what are we about? The Talking Jesus report by Evangelical Alliance last year said that two-thirds of Christians had shared their faith within the last month, which is really encouraging. That's good news. Um, and, and we want to continue to do that, obviously. So it leads me to my third point, clarity. For many centuries, we have enjoyed the freedom to share and discuss our religious beliefs. The, this protection is founded in principles of the common law, in domestic legislation like the Public Order Act, and in European legislation, principally the European Convention on Human Rights. My understanding is that that will continue after Brexit, after being incorporated uh, into domestic law, or continuing to be, um, but the whole rights debate is, is a live debate at, at the moment, absolutely. But, but how does this work practically in everyday life? When we ask some lawyers, the Lawyers Christian Fellowship, to help us give the clarity about the law and the freedom and protections we have um, to, to Christians, we wanted to restore confidence in those legal protections in a way that can be easily understood and accessible. We have amazing freedoms, and this is good news. But eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, as a former US president said. And freedoms are like muscles. If we don't exercise them, they begin to waste away. And so we hope this resource will give some confidence, some confidence back to the Christian community. Uh, in doing so, it calls for Christians to always act with wisdom and with sensitivity. Because sometimes people are not fired uh, or disciplined or socially marginalised because they are Christians, but actually because they're rude, they're insensitive, and they're a disruptive influence in their workplace. We, we need to understand the context in which we are speaking at work. And so we've tried to give practical applications and suggestions in here as well. The resource reminds us that these wide-ranging freedoms that we have um, extend online, in the street, in our workplaces, in our homes as well. And indeed, for those who love the Lord, this message of hope is impossible to, co to contain. It inevitably bubbles up uh, in our conversations with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues. So amid the religious illiteracy out there, the confusion, the deliberate attempts by some to chill the atmosphere for any public expression of Christianity, we, we hope this resource will provide a clearer picture of the legal basis for us to talk uh, about Jesus. So I'm not going to go into a legal conversation today. If you have any more specific questions about that, they may well be answered in here or speak to me at the end. Uh, absolutely fine. I want to move on, having sort of highlighted the resource and this idea of speaking up. I want to think about the words that we use. Because words matter. Words have changed the world. Real words of real people have helped to change the course of history. Have you ever thought about that? Words have started wars. And words have ended wars. Words have began romances and ended them. Consigned people to bondage and brought people out of freedom. Words matter. I have a dream. We all know where that comes from. Ich bin ein Berliner, 
forgive my German, but JFK was a, a master orator. We shall fight them on the beaches, Winston Churchill. We think of people in history who have a great way with words and could rouse people to action at specific times. Or women persons, Susan B. Anthony uh, and the suffragette movement. Going back further, the words, have frame, words actually formed the world. Have you ever thought about that? God spoke the creation into being. Jesus, the word made flesh. His words called people to new ways of living, new identities, new relationships with God, with each other, and with the world around us. So when we speak up, the words we use matter. Eugene Peterson says this, Words and words are the very core of God's revelation of himself to us. If the words are damaged through carelessness or malicious, malicious usage, or if the words are left in bad repair or pick up barnacle encrustations from hanging around in bad company, the sharp details of Jesus' revelation are blunted. Careless language in the service of Jesus is responsible for an enormous amount of mischief, rivaling outright lying as an impediment to hearing and responding to the message of God's good news to us. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters described how a team of skilled uh, demons in the service of the Father below diligently worked away at eroding and then ruining the meaning of words. He writes this, They have a special interest in working on the words the Christian community uses in its conversation and witness. They've done a pretty good job on the word repent by introducing cartoon figures of bent-over men carrying sandwich boards. And in the word saved, by reducing it to a password that gets you into heaven. Very perceptive writing uh, more than 60 years ago. And we need to remember that if we ask the average unchurched teenager if they're washed in the blood of the lamb, they'll think that you're an animal-killing psychopath. It's the same with a whole lot of different words. Salvation, saved from what? Evangelical, what does that mean? Born again. It's not that we stop using these words and phrases, but when we do, we need to understand that there's less and less literacy of what those words mean from the culture around us. And so it literally feels at times like we're speaking different languages. Uh, take the word freedom. We know what freedom means in Christianity. And actually, ironically, it means being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So being free is actually being a slave to Christ. There's always this paradox in Scripture. Being free in the world around us means pushing away from anyone else or religion or anything that would put any constraints or boundaries on you. So even when we use the same words, very often our understanding of the words that we're using is completely different to how they're heard in, in the world around us. So words matter, perhaps more than ever. Truth is a controversial and contested concept. And in a post-truth world, as it's being described, the difficulty there is we stop believing each other. And when we stop believing each other, we stop trusting each other because we can't believe what someone else is saying. And when we stop trusting each other, that's when community begins to erode. So part of our role as gospel defenders of speaking up is to proclaim truth and to rebuild trust. Context matters. That's us. Context matters. So are you speaking one-to-one -one with someone? Are you speaking on the public airways? Are you speaking in formal communication or on social media for anyone to read? It's important to pause and to think about the context into which you're using the words that matter.
I'm thinking about how sometimes God's word is written in different contexts, in the form of poetry or song. Uh, sometimes it's history or law or prophecy. It's always true, but it's not always communicated in the same ways. And neither should we always communicate in the same way. So discern wisely your context before you speak. God's word speaks about objective philosophical truth, about the most complex moral and existential questions of the universe. It speaks of personal relationships, of economics, of creation, of poetry, of human rights and responsibilities. It provides psychological insights from the one who made us. So God's word speaks to all of life. And so whenever we speak into a particular area of life, it's important that we honour God's word and share it carefully, not carelessly. We don't want to use the Lord's name in vain when we invoke his precious word. We're not trying to sell the gospel like a used car salesman. I can talk to someone about how whenever uh, I look at a fine example of a female homo sapien to whom I'm legally bound, and, and the light reflects off her in a particular way, that I experience a chemical reaction that floods my body with endorphins. That's all true, but it's not a very warm way to describe the love I feel from a wife whenever I see her. Words and context matter, and depending on the type of debate or conversation or situation you find yourself in, you need to choose your words wisely. Social media, and this deserves just a little mention, we live in the first generation where we are writing words by um, tapping on a screen. And writing words by punching them with your fingers on a screen feels very different to forming them with your tongue in your own mouth or even forming them with your own hand. And we need to be careful whenever we disembody our words. They can feel more removed from us before we've even hit the send button into the ether. Your words on Facebook and Twitter are still your words. Don't be anti-social on social media. If you wouldn't say it to a stranger's face, then don't say it to their Facebook. Common sense. If in doubt, don't say it. Put your device down. Walk away. Be aware your words can live long on social media, even after you've regretted your post and deleted it. It can have been shared and saved and all sorts of things. We need to be careful when dealing with incredibly sensitive and complex moral issues that we don't reduce them down to a like, a smiley face or a thumbs up. Emojis may be good fun, but not every picture says a thousand words. On the other hand, social media is literally a marketplace of ideas and worldviews. Don't be afraid to be present there, but be salt and be light. Too little salt is bland. The right amount brings out flavour. Too much ruins the taste. Are you preserving the truth? Are you storing it away out of sight? Are you helping to shed light on a situation? Or are you blinding people to the truth that you are saying that you profess? Maybe you're adding more heat than light at times. Don't be a parrot. Don't just add white noise to the conversation. Be yourself. Maybe you have a pastoral heart. Be pastoral. Maybe you're funny. Be satirical. Use thoughtful words that respectfully provoke others. And if you really want opportunities to speak up, then don't use social media very much in public. Be fully present. You'll be amazed how much you will notice things and people that others don't because they are so engrossed in their screen worlds. 
now I want to move on to, uh, so you'll see I, I take a bit of a shotgun approach. Uh, I just fire different ideas and thoughts uh, and hopefully, I, don't, I won't injure you, hopefully one of them will connect at some, at some level. Uh, I want to share some lessons from the field. I've been doing this job five years. I'm a solicitor by background. And for the last five years, I've been involved in speaking to government, speaking on media. Um, I'm trying to represent uh, a Christian viewpoint in the, the public world, I suppose. And I have huge freedom and opportunities to share my faith publicly and privately. And I, I don't want to give the impression at all that Christians are being persecuted. We save that language for our brothers and sisters who are being beheaded in other parts of the world. But there certainly is a sense that the Christians are being marginalized. Uh, so here are some personal ins insights over five years of engaging. Uh, and I want to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller uh, at this point. Uh, I always try with my words to be respectfully provocative. So I want to provoke uh, a, a world that's maybe not interested in Jesus. But I want to do so respectfully. I want to point to him. Um, you will encounter name-calling, uh, bigot, dinosaur, fascist, fanaticist, uh, fantasist, uh, anti-women. It's not new. It's not limited to Christians. But it is increasing, and it can be silencing. So, very simply, we don't rec resort to name-calling ourselves, even whenever we're deliberately misunderstood, and it's very frustrating. Um, when we are called names, sometimes it's helpful to acknowledge it. You've just called me a name. That's not really helpful in the argument that we're talking about. And sometimes acknowledging that will actually uh, embarrass um, the other person in the, where they've kind of gone with the conversation. Um, I, I face the, the accusation that Christianity is harmful. Seeing this more and more, and tied up in this is, uh, I suppose, in the implication behind the name calling. Uh, it limits personal freedom, it's anti-choice, it's homophobic. Um, and so, my guy suggests that in some people's minds, not in everyone's, we have gone from being seen as harmless do-gooders to harmful do-baggers. Not everyone, but in some people's minds, that's the shift that we are now actually causing harm and doing bad. We're not just oh, the harmless Christians, just do-gooders out there. Um, the moral failures of Christians in the church, that's often thrown up. And the implication that because we have failed, our message cannot be trusted. And I think there's a misunderstanding of the very message at the heart of the gospel, because we have all failed miserably. Again, a confusion between the feelings of the messenger and the validity of the message, and sometimes pointing that out humbly is important. And all sections of the church must wrestle with this, and we need to take responsibility. As a body of believers, our personal conduct will affect our public witness. Um, stop forcing your views on others. Leave your religion at the door. Uh, I often hear that around politics or education or whatever we, you know, it might be. Um, you know, faith should be left at the door. This is a, a secular space. Uh, because th the greatest offence in the postmodern, post-truth culture is to believe something, to stand for it, and to dare to disagree with the choices that someone else makes. Instantly, we're accused of shaming them, of forcing our views on others, of judging them, because we have stood for uh, something that we believe to be true or good. But we're, we're not trying to force our views on anyone. We do so no more or, or less than anyone else in the public square. Government media companies through their advertising and everyone else on social media. It's a melting pot of, of ideas. 
Sometimes they're raising a legitimate question. Who are we speaking for? Sometimes we do need to speak for Christians and for the protection of faith groups. But very often as Christians, we are called to speak for the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed. Um, to speak for ideas, to contend for ideas and issues that value everyone, particularly the weakest in society. Uh, and so one interesting side point in this is that I'm very rarely told to leave my ideas about poverty or um, uh, sort of human trafficking at the door. It, it tends to be around issues which challenge most the personal autonomy um, that so that our culture is built around. Uh, and sometimes there's a dichotomy that's brought up between social justice issues and moral issues. Uh, I reject that. I think how we as a society decide to pay our taxes is a deeply moral issue as well as one of social justice. I think uh, the issue of abortion is a, a, an issue of social justice as well as being one about a personal moral choice. But here's the point. We don't impose our beliefs or simply oppose other beliefs out there. We humbly propose hopeful words and beliefs that we believe are true and good for everyone. We very often face loaded premises. What do I mean by that? I don't know if anyone's wife has ever uh, said to them, why do you keep leaving the toilet seat up? Now, the premise in that question is that the proper place for the toilet seat is down. Whenever every man in here knows, that's clearly wrong. Uh, if anyone watches The West Wing, there's a, a great episode where um, the White House spokesperson is, is told to reject the premise. Of, if you don't like the question, reject the premise behind the question. So I'm not saying that we wriggle out of every question at all, but very often, whenever we're engaging with the world around us, we will face loaded questions, questions that come with a particular uh, premise contained in them. The world expects us to respond to issues on their terms and their assumptions. And while it's vital that we meet the world where they're at, don't be afraid to reject the premise behind the question. So, for example, a question I'm often asked, why do Christians hate gay people? The premise there is that Christians hate gay people, obviously. And how do I respond? There may be a genuine point to be addressed in many questions, but don't blindly accept the premise behind it. So, for example, I might say, the issue of sexuality is all about relationships, identity, and belief, things that we all care deeply about. And I humbly accept that the church hasn't always got this right. We haven't always been the welcoming place that we should be to everyone. Of this, we need to repent and be compassionate. However, because, um, because Christians um, believe in different boundaries for sexual relationship, it doesn't mean that we hate people who are gay. And you come around and address the issue presenting in the question. Uh, often face the myth of neutrality. Uh, so that often means that I often it's implied, well your views are religious so you know they don't really matter. You shouldn't bring your views or your beliefs into politics. But what about humanists or atheists or Marxists or socialists? They carry their views and, and values into the voting chamber, into the airwaves as much as anyone else. They're driven by their vision of what a good society looks like. And that's where we disagree. We have a different vision of the common good. But no one has a neutral vision. That just doesn't exist. And so we challenge this idea of neutrality. We graciously point that out. Uh, there's another myth of progress. That what is, better, what is now is better than what went before simply because now it is new and shiny. A perfect example is the abortion law in Northern Ireland, for instance. Often hear it in that debate. Because that law is old, 
um, that it must be then out of date, regardless of what it actually says or does or strives to do. And actually, the act that it comes from, the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, is invoked every day in our courts under offences such as grievous bodily harm, assault. Um, and so it is in use in lots of contexts. Um, uh, and so, but, but the premise there is that just because something is old, um, that what is now or what is to come will always be better. And I'm not sure that's always true. Okay, finally, some practical sort of tips. How, um, how do we navigate this space well? How do we engage winsomely and wisely with the world around us? How do we speak up faithfully as Christians in this time and this place, Northern Ireland, in 2017? Well, let me suggest we start thinking of ourselves as ambassadors. We, we live with the reality of dual citizenship in Northern Ireland since the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. You can be both Irish and British at the same time. We have that freedom to choose your citizenship. So we're familiar with that. And we've seen after Brexit that citizenship is, is being talked about a lot more. Are you European? Are you British? Are you Irish? Are you all three? Are you none? Who knows? But we speak as ambassadors, and I love the, the language in 2 Corinthians 5, where um, we are called ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And maybe I like it because it's a really political image. Ambassadors are sent from one kingdom to another. They're sent with a purpose. They're not just there on holidays or as private citizens getting on with their own affairs. They're sent there to live in another culture, but they're loyal citizens of the place where they have come from. They're sent on a mission. And their job is to read the two cultures, to practice diplomacy, translating their message appropriately to the new culture that they find themselves in. And this is our role as Christians, uh, as ambassadors. We're not there to wine and dine, to broker trade deals or political deals, but to carry the values and the truth and Christ into the world around us. Let me say this. In your engagements as you're speaking up, most people probably won't remember what you said after a couple of hours, weeks, months, but they will remember how you said it. And tone is vital. Unfortunately, my organisation doesn't get asked to comment very often on the opening of new children's play parks. Most of the issues that, that we comment on are, are very controversial in some way or another. And so tone is absolutely vital. We, we say some pretty difficult things for our culture to hear. And at times our message can be perceived as offensive in and of itself. Whenever we speak of um, one way to God, of objective truth, of sin, um, of the need to be saved, to repent, um, these are very offensive messages um, to the world around us. Then you add in a controversial, complex issue, um, such as we see very often in Northern Ireland, reconciliation or um, marriage or whatever it may be, and you're dealing with very contentious, difficult issues, and so tone is so important. Now, there's definitely times for the truthful naming of things. Sometimes we need to use our language uh, like, a, like a scalpel uh, or, or maybe bluntly, and we need to name things and, and rename things truthfully because words have been used to hide what's really going on. And language is a new battlefield, but let's be careful not to add offence with our tone and our words whenever possible. Jesus, talk about Jesus. Jesus changes the conversation. A few years ago, um, I was able to meet with Martin McGuinness and talk about reconciliation. And I was in his office, office sitting there, 
sort of pinching myself, thinking, what am I doing here? I, I have no political capital. Um, and so I spoke of Jesus, and I spoke of the Good Samaritan, and how his story redefined enemies as neighbors, neighbors to whom we are called to love. I, I spoke of grace. I spoke about how we long to see more grace exercised in the politics of Northern Ireland, how grace changed the, the parameters of the possible, how it was otherworldly and turned uh, a politics of power plays right on its head. Jesus' conversations can be uncomfortable at times because comfort or avoiding an awkward situation was not always Jesus' key priority. Sometimes the awkwardness that we experience when we speak up can actually be used by the Holy Spirit to confront, to provoke. And so we tend to avoid awkwardness at every cost, don't we, in our culture? But maybe it's not always a bad thing. Jesus' conversations are vital if we are to learn to speak up in ways that will challenge people so that they hear his voice. Um, start small. If you don't know where to start speaking up, start small. Culture is so big and so diverse and many of the issues we face are incredibly complex. It's very hard to change um, society out there but it can happen through a small group of people a creative minority who can shape smaller spaces so while changing the national discourse on a particular issue can be very difficult changing the tone and the words and the conversation in your own home, in your office staff room um, wherever it may be in your friendship group of five people, that can be easier the believers were together and they held everything in common that small group of believers changed the world. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Sinn Féin, they pay every um, uh, MLA in their party an industrial wage of, of the average working wage, so it's about £23,000, something like that. Even though MLAs earn close to £50,000. That, that's pretty radical. Whenever people hear that and they understand that everyone in their party, from the, the leader to a councillor, is, is paid the same amount of, of money, that, that's quite a radical idea. Now, I wonder, are we known for countercultural practices within the church that are just as radical as that? I wonder, are the words and the language that, that we use, are, are they radical? Are we, are we doing something uh, different? I suppose that leads me on to my last point. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and with respect. Now, the premise in this question is that we are living in a way whereby people can't help but ask questions. So we're always to be prepared to give an answer, but the premise there is that people will be asking questions. That presupposes that we are living differently. That there's something about us that is causing people to ask questions about the hope that we have. And, and questions can be difficult for a number of reasons. Again, they can be complex or awkward or, or we just don't know the answer. And difficult questions don't often lead to easy answers. It might take a long time if we're speaking up regularly. It might take several conversations. It might take wrestling with people to help them understand what Christians really believe and why. And don't feel that you have to answer it all immediately or in one conversation. You're seeking to introduce people to Jesus, remember, not to win an academic theological argument. And some will refuse to listen. Others will deliberately misunderstand you in the gospel. 
but we want to make sure it's clearly understood by as many people as possible. We want to spread the good news, and this means both speaking about it and living it out with our daily lives. Um, really simple points just to finish then. Um, summing up what I've kind of said, be brave, be true, be kind, be consistent, back up your speech with your actions. Um, if you're engaging publicly with your uh, MLAs, I have a slide that we'll put up at the end that has contact details for all the political parties for the Talkback Show, the Nolan Show, U105. You can take a picture of that in your phone and have it there. And if you want to engage more in speaking up uh, publicly or engaging with your public representatives on particular issues, you can have that to hand and have all those contact details in one place. Hopefully this will be uh, useful for you as well and uh, there's copies for you on either side as you're leaving. But I deliberately wanted to leave some time now for questions if, if anyone has, has any questions. Again, my apologies, I probably fired out lots and lots of ideas there but if anything is struck with you and you have a question uh, please do stick up your hand yeah good question how do you find common ground in conversations where you're dealing with someone who holds the exact opposite view I suppose um, I, I think I probably start by pointing out that, that we're coming at an issue we often start at debate or an issue at the point of conflict that's why we're talking about it that's why it's topical or in the news or in conversation, because there's some sort of uh, conflict there. I often try to start by encouraging uh, the person I'm talking to, let's take a step back, um, because my understanding of the world is entirely different to yours. Um, I don't believe that we uh, are randomly here as accidents. I believe that when we die, there is um, going to be judgment and justice one day and eternal life and, and a new creation that the world will be, will be made new uh, and I believe in Jesus Christ, he is the linchpin of history and, and if you don't believe that then we're going to see things very differently now you'll still be common ground because I believe that despite the scars of the fall um, the image of God is still clearly visible in every human being, that's why we fight for human dignity for everyone um, and so I, I suppose I start by finding, uh, pointing out the differences, but then saying, but there is common ground. Um, we probably both want justice in this situation. We both want the best. I mean, we have different ideas of what the best is. We have a different vision of the common good here, a different vision of what's best for the individual or for society in general. And trying to find that common ground, um, it, it does often begin to emerge um, if you point out the differences first of all, and then what you're, where are you going? What, what are you trying to achieve here? And if we're honest and open about those things, I think common ground begins to open up. And, and I think that's really fruitful and really helpful. Brilliant. Well, listen, this resource is perfect. This is you. Um, yeah, how, how do you share your faith in work um, where you might some uh, an issue might be taken up against you or where you're not meant to? Uh, and I suppose, uh, back, to, back to this resource, actually, um, there is a perception that there's lots of places that we cannot speak about our faith. Um, but actually, we have a lot of freedoms in the workplace as well. Um, so people will come in and talk about what they did at the weekend. People will talk about their family, their friends, if they went kayaking, if they went on a snowboarding holiday. Um, and so you can go back to work and tell people you were at New Horizon, and they won't know what that is, but you can tell them. And um, you can share your, your faith. I think what I would say is 
um, trying to develop it naturally. Don't try to shoehorn it in or beat people with it, and I'm sure you won't. Um, and there's some good tips about how do we do that graciously. If you're a manager in work and you're always talking about God with um, a junior employee to the point where they're starting to feel uncomfortable and thinking, I probably need to start taking an interest in God if I'm going to keep my job here, that maybe an abuse of trust and, and, and not the quite the, the proper context with which to share your faith. But we cannot but share our faith in some way. And um, yeah, this book has some really good practical advice and actually dispel some of the myths that are out there about where and when and how we can or can't share our faith. So yeah, make sure you take a copy. Yeah. No huge question, and you, you can do a whole seminar on, on that question alone. Um, and so it, it's more nuanced than keep faith out of politics, or y yes, your faith should be present in every political proclamation. I don't, I don't think it, it's, it's that either or. Um, if you look back over political history, um, lots of people were inspired by their faith to do things that um, every, most people in society agreed with. Um, so bringing in child protection laws, bringing, bringing in laws to um, stop children being sent up chimneys, um, schooling, health, education, um, ending slavery is obviously a famous example. Lots of people were motivated by their faith. Um, it may have been controversial at some times, but we, we look at those examples and most people can go, yeah, that, well, that's good, I can align with that, so that's okay. Faith and politics can coexist there, but don't try to bring your faith in whenever you are um, trying to do something that will stop my personal freedom. Now, that, this is where it starts to get more and more tricky. So I don't think any political party should be the church of prayer. I have real issues whenever um, Christianity gets entwined with empire, with politics. That, to me, is deeply concerning. Um, we get enamored with power. I think we should be both in the system, um, sort of Daniels and Esthers, but also a dissonant voice on the outside, challenging, creatively demonstrating and modeling a different way of doing life. And, and politics will only take us, take us so far. You, you can pass a law tomorrow saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That would be a rubbish law. I mean, you, you know, that's, a, that's, that's a law that's written on our hearts. Um, that, that's not a law for the, the statute books. So it's complicated, and whenever it gets more heated, and more nuanced and more difficult whenever our religious views are more out of step with the direction the culture is going and whenever what we are proposing as our vision of what is good for society um, more and more conflicts with an autonomous individualistic view of what is good for society I, I, would, I would suggest and that's where we're seeing the biggest clashes today in, in politics here but also in the western world yeah, really good question. Um, some people are... So again, it's like... I would almost compare it to any organisation. It's almost an organisational dynamic. And um, I wonder here if you, you might belong to different denominations. Do you agree with absolutely everything that your denomination would say or do publicly? I, I don't know. Um, or... Uh, so there's that dynamic between your individual conscience and, and the larger grouping. Um, you may be happy to support them by funding what they do or being a member of that organisation, but not publicly aligning yourself. You're, you're sometimes people live in these sort of balances. But yeah, I mean, 
very often there's a number of organizations that will work in a particular area, and if you look at them, there will be a range of approaches. Um, some will be more outspoken or will use a more um, aggressive, confrontational, more conservative, more liberal, whatever the words are. They'll use a certain tone and, a, and style, uh, and others will, will maybe have a style with which you're more comfortable and will, will align. You probably won't find a political party with which you'll agree with absolutely everything on. Um, some parties will say we represent the Christian voice, and that may be true on certain issues, but whenever you go to other issues, um, perhaps around economics, the environment, how we deal with the poor, uh, maybe it is marriage or abortion, whatever, it's very hard to think of a party that um, you, you as a Christian will think, yes, they, they represent exactly what I want to be represented by Christianity. I suppose that's not the rule of politics, but um, yeah, some some um, organisations you will align with more than others. And, and what I would encourage you to do as well is to challenge. If you if you can agree, maybe sixty, seventy percent of what they're what they're saying, get in touch, challenge them. Say, I really like where you land on these issues, but the way you present your tone, your style actually is really a barrier for me and, and maybe lots of other people like me and I'd like to open up a conversation about that because you might be surprised there's maybe lots of other people thinking the same. I think, I think the way you phrase the question is very helpful so I think it is a question of wisdom. I don't think I would ever say no you should, you should never do that or yes you should always do that. Um, it comes down to wisdom, it comes down to the context and um, maybe there what other responsibilities or positions does that person hold? Maybe if they are uh, a teacher or um, a church minister, um, it may not be helpful for the people that they are shepherding or, or um, ministering to or leading or speaking to day by day. That may not be helpful. Um, and yeah, it, it is a question of wisdom. Some other people you know, may not affect the role that they do or their public profile in, in any way. And that's that's fine, they decide, no, I, I can do this. Um, our organization, we often get aligned with different parties on different issues. So um, we work on a whole range of issues and have done for 170 years before any of the parties in Northern Ireland were ever set up. Um, and, and so we've worked on issues for a long time. And um, we find ourselves aligned issue by issue with different parties. Sometimes that means people think we're aligned to a particular party. Um, it, it doesn't. And very often, uh, the emails that I get from different MLAs are very funny sometimes because they will perceive us to be um, aligned with their opposition at, at times on an issue by issue basis. So it is a danger. Um, you can't avoid the perceptions out there, but you can be wise in how you manage those. Um, so. Yeah, case-by-case case basis. Sorry, I can't be more, more specific than that. Uh, unless that's it, um, I'm happy to wind up there. Please do take a copy of Speak Up. If you look at the resource and actually think, hey, I'd love 10 copies of these or 20 or 100, get in touch with me. We'll be at the stand this week and we can arrange that for you if you think it's a resource that would help your outreach team or your church or your eldership or your whoever it may be, your organization. Please do get in touch. But thank you so much for coming. Thank you.